0: Um, hi, I'm Caitlin. I'll be a scripture reader for today. Today's passage is from Luke four fourteen to 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff but passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the
1: Lord. Thank you, Caitlin, for reading God's words so well for us this morning. And thank you, Sam, for leading us in this time of worship. I do see a few new faces. And for those of you who are new to the church, my name is Joel. I'm the Associate Pastor serving here at One Covenant Church. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you, I would love to have a chat with you after this service. And we're starting a new sermon series today in Luke's Gospel. And we'll be looking at Luke's Gospel from chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to the end of chapter 6. And this will take us all the way to March. And as we hear from God this morning, let us ask for his help to understand his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We rejoice in the fact that we are gathered here as your people to worship you with the heavenly heavenly hosts and with the saints that have gone before us. Father, we recognise that you alone are deserving of our worship, that you alone are deserving of our praises, and that you have saved us from the darkness and you have brought us into the light. And Father, as we hear from you this morning, would you help us to see that these are words of life, that these are life-giving words for our souls. And Father, I pray that you'll take these words plant deep into our hearts so that we may grow in our love for you. And Father, would you give me the words to speak as well so that I may be faithful in all that you have given to us. So we pray all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, we, as I mentioned, we begin a new sermon series this morning. And we are coming back to the Gospel of Luke and we are continuing where we left off last year. We ended with the temptation of Jesus Christ in the wilderness where he overcame temptations by the devil. And for this series, we'll be focusing on the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and specifically we are pivoting to his ministry In Galilee, now Galilee was a region in the northern part of ancient Israel. It was known for its diverse population. You had Jews, you had Gentiles, you had Samaritans who were living there. And for this reason, Galilee was a melting pot of various cultures. And this comes up in Jesus' interactions with different people. Now with regards to Jesus' ministry in Galilee, the focus is on Him as a preacher, as a healer, and as a prophet, as a preacher, Jesus came to preach good news. As a healer, Jesus came to heal the afflicted, both physically and spiritually. And as a prophet, Jesus came to call people to repentance and belief. And though we will see, Jesus himself was rejected like the prophets of old. Now passage this morning is important because it sets the tone for Jesus' earthly ministry and the message he came to proclaim. The message of God's kingly reign is a message of salvation and everything that Jesus did as God's spirit anointed servant, all of that was witnessing to this kingdom. Now the Dutch theologian, Gerhardus Vos, he puts it this way. He says the kingdom is where God supernaturally carries through his supremacy against all opposing powers and brings man to the willing recognition of the same. So in other words, what he's saying is that through Jesus, through the message that he came to bring, that all of us will be liberated to see and to be included into the kingdom of god and so as we explore this passage we get a teaser and we get a sense of the liberating message of god's kingdom so let's look at this passage and we'll do so in three parts the demonstration of the kingdom the proclamation of the kingdom and the response to the kingdom so if your bibles turn there with me to luke chapter 4 and we'll begin with verses 14 to 15. this is what the word says And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus returned from the wilderness to Galilee, which is where he was raised, and he began his messianic ministry. Now it's interesting that he begins, he chose to begin with Galilee, because the Judeans, In Jesus' day, they tended to look down on the Galileans. They were seen as uneducated. They were seen as of questionable ancestry. In fact, if we talk about the Jewish Messiah, you would expect that he would start with Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which was the center of religious authority and of power back then. So why did Jesus choose to begin with galilee well perhaps it reflects the purpose of jesus's ministry right from the get-go jesus came to serve those who are despised jesus came to serve those who are marginalized now we're not sure why and how a report of jesus began circulating because after all we have not seen jesus do anything that is significant but what we do know is this that jesus emerged with the power of the Spirit. Now, in the last sermon series on Luke's Gospel, we concluded that section with, as I mentioned, the temptation of Jesus. And Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we read that Jesus was filled with the Spirit and he was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And after overcoming all of those temptations, Jesus emerged from the wilderness in the power. the spirit and so by bracketing this whole temptation episode you have verse 1 that begins with the spirit and it ends off with the spirit it helps us to see that how jesus endured the temptations of the devil and that is he did so by the holy spirit he depended on the holy spirit to endure the onslaught of the devil Himself And this same Spirit has now empowered Jesus Christ for His ministry. And this idea that Jesus was empowered by the, ministry for his, for, by the Spirit for His ministry is actually one of Luke's emphases in his Gospel account. In fact, Luke's Gospel mentions the Holy Spirit more times than the other Gospel writers. And this tells us that Luke is emphasizing the work of the Spirit in Jesus' ministry from the beginning to the end. And it's fascinating to see how well received Jesus was at the onset of his ministry. Jesus was glorified by all, which means that people were actually impressed with what Jesus was saying, with what Jesus was doing, and they were praising him for all that he was doing and how do we account for all of this for this phenomenon was well, because his ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and his words and his works were witnessing to the kingdom of God. So what Jesus was doing was nothing less than demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God. It's through the works of Christ, Jesus Christ, who's been filled with the Holy Spirit, that the powers of darkness are being pushed back. By the powers of God's kingdom. And we see something similar in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, when Jesus spoke in the context of casting out demons, where he says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this is what we find throughout Jesus' earthly ministry that the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit demonstrate that God's kingdom is here. And this continues in the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke. And the believers, you know, after Jesus ascended into the right hand of the Father, they were described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. And because they were filled by the Holy Spirit, all that they did, all that they proclaimed, all of those things witnessed to the expanding kingdom of God. And friends, we need to recognize that God's kingdom is seen only through the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. And as believers, when we're united to Christ, who was himself empowered by the Spirit, and we ourselves will be empowered by the Holy Spirit as well. The reality of God's kingdom is seen through the Spirit who works mightily in all of us. And this is important to emphasize because of a common misperception. And it's this idea that, you know, a church like ours, you know, that preaches doctrine, a church that preaches in an expository manner, that we focus on, you know, the rational understanding, the intelligent understanding of the word. And a church like ours actually has very little room for the Holy Spirit. And friends, I want to say that that is not true. That is so far from the truth. In fact, we need to recognize that the place, the important place of the Holy Spirit. Because without the Spirit, there will be no proper understanding of God's spiritual word. Without the Spirit, we will not see lies being transformed from the inside out. And without the Spirit, we will not have the courage to do the things that we are called to do and especially in the face of opposition the only way we can do all of these things is through the empowering work of the holy spirit now to be sure we need to be careful with unbalanced views of the holy spirit and we will find ourselves you know saying things about the holy spirit that he doesn't do or saying things about the holy spirit that he doesn't say and so we need to be careful of all of that but nevertheless we should be careful to not neglect or to downplay the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in all of us. The Holy Spirit leads us and He empowers us to be faithful to God. You know, one of the vows that we take in the church is this, you know, do you rely humbly upon the grace of the Holy Spirit? And that is what is in view here. The The humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit and it's true depending upon the Spirit that we are able to remain faithful to God and to do the things that will witness to the kingdom of God Himself. And really it's by depending upon the grace of the Spirit that we show the world what an awesome King we belong to. We show the world that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And this is what we need to recognize through the demonstration of the kingdom. Now, with this demonstration comes proclamation. And so that's our second point. Now, as the story continues, in Luke's Gospel, we are told in verse 16 that Jesus returned to the place where he was raised, and that is Nazareth. And Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, which is what any faithful Jewish man would do. And by divine providence, Jesus was given the privilege to read and to speak at the synagogue. Now Jesus, given this privilege, He had the freedom to pick any of the prophetic passage to read. And Jesus decided to pick Isaiah 61 as His passage. And this is what He said. In, and Picking up from Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 2, this is what He says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. As I mentioned, this quotation is largely from Isaiah 61, which is a prophecy on the year of the Lord's favour, that the messenger, the Messiah himself, has been anointed with the spirit Of the Lord, and He has come to bring good news to the poor and the lowly. Now, we've seen this language of the year of the Lord's favor before, and it's a reference to Leviticus chapter 25, which talks about the year of the Jubilee. Now, you may remember from our sermon series on Leviticus, which was not too long ago, and we saw that Jubilee was part of this larger work rest pattern that God instituted for the nation israel and so the israelites they were called to rest on one day of the week on the sabbath and they were called to rest on the seventh year of a 7 year cycle but at the same time the israelites were called to celebrate a year of jubilee and that entire year of jubilee that whole year was to be regarded as holy and when israel came to the jubilee year which you as you might remember you know israel never observed the year of jubilee but what they were supposed to do was to remove all debts and they were to return people to their property so in other words it has to do with the idea of liberation the liberation of people now, In Isaiah's prophecy, in Isaiah 61, the theme of Jubilee is picked up with the release of the Israelites from Babylonian captivity. But when Jesus quotes this prophecy, he's not talking about the return of Israel from captivity, which happened you know, about 500 years before he was born, but rather, Jesus is speaking of a new liberation. Jesus is speaking of a new release. God's people will be restored and they'll return to the place Of God's rule and it will be God's eternal rule that a Messiah is coming to bring about this release from captivity so that his people will no longer be captive and this is what Luke is tapping on when he speaks about the year of the Lord's favor but what does this have to do with Jesus what does all of this have to do with Jesus well look at verse 21 with me he says this and he began to say to them today the scripture Has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus, as he stands before the crowd, basically tells them that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, that Jesus is the long awaited herald who is here to proclaim the message of freedom. He is here to set captives free from poverty and from oppression. Now, when Jesus mentions poverty and oppression, he's not just talking about them, defining them in material or economic terms, but rather there's a deeper spiritual reality. You see, in the original Greek, the word translated as liberty in verse 18 is the word our faces. And in Luke's gospel, our faces refers to the forgiveness of sins. And this means that Jesus came specifically to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. And that is the thrust for us, for us of his ministry. is to call people to repentance. Is to call people to believe in the redemptive message of the gospel. Now the people, as they are hearing all of this, they are obviously captured by what he said. But they actually had doubts on whether he's truly the Messiah. You know, how could this guy, this Jesus, you know, who is who grew up in their midst, you know, who is the son of Joseph, you know, how could this guy be the Messiah? How could this guy be the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. So, what they wanted Jesus to do was to perform works of miraculous nature. They wanted him to perform miraculous works to prove that he is indeed the Messiah. And all does Jesus respond? He responds by saying that he will, that he will be rejected. He responds by saying, That he will not be accepted even in his hometown. And this rejection replicates a pattern that we find in the Old Testament, which is the rejection of God's prophet by God's people. And to illustrate his point, Jesus appeals to two examples from the Old Testament. You have the first example, which is the sending of the prophet Elijah. To the widow Zarephath, and you find this recorded in First Kings chapter 17 that there was a drought and there was a famine that struck all of Israel, and he had all of these widows who were needy. And yet God sent Elijah to Zarephath, who was living in Sidon, not in Israel, and she was a Gentile, and it was her boy that was raised from the dead. So God chose to reach out and to help this Gentile woman and not. The Israelites. And the second example is the prophet Elisha's healing of Naaman the Syrian, who was also a Gentile. And you find this in 2 Kings chapter 5. You see, there were many other lepers in Israel, and yet Naaman was the only leper who was healed. Now, Jesus gave us both of these examples, and he shows us that God sent help to Gentiles instead of his covenant people, Israel. And this is significant because... Both of these instances in First Kings and Second Kings, both of these occurred in Israel's history where they were marked by disobedience. And because of their disobedience, mercy was not extended to them. It was extended to the Gentiles. And the same thing was happening in Jesus' day. And we'll actually see this in the rest of Luke's Gospel. That it was the rejection of the Jews that led to the extension of grace to the Gentiles. And what's the message that Jesus is getting across here? Well, simply this. Those who have the greatest privilege, these people are often the ones who reject the message of God's salvation. And by contrast, the people that we think are beyond salvation, are beyond the pale of salvation. These are the people who would repent and actually believe. And friends, don't we see this? in a sense, play out even in our own day. There are those who grew up in church. There are those who grew up in Christian households and they actually root their confidence in that reality that, oh, I know that I'm safe because I grew up in church. Oh, I know that I'm safe because I grew up in a Christian household. So they place their confidence in all of these things. They place their confidence in the ministries that they serve in. So instead of placing their faith in Jesus Christ himself what they have done is that they have trusted in their commitment to all of those church activities to all of those privileges in other words they have trusted in their own works rather than the work of Jesus Christ on the other hand you know we do see people unlikely people who come to the faith these are people that we don't expect to come to the faith. And perhaps this is your own experience as well, that you had this incredible experience and your life turned away in a very big way. And actually one such person who had this experience was C.S. Lewis. And some of you would probably be familiar with C.S. Lewis. Now, Lewis was interesting because he was baptised in the Church of England. But at some point, he actually converted to atheism in his adolescent year, and so he was kind of a staunch atheist for for a good part of his life, and actually believed in his atheism that life was grim. He believed that life was meaningless, and in some ways, that is kind of the rational conclusion that he reached with regards to his atheism, but through the influences of various writers like J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, and people like G.K. Chesterton, Lewis found it difficult, increasingly difficult, to disagree with the arguments that they gave. And these were arguments against naturalism, which means that all that exists is the natural, the material. And they were arguments against that and arguments for the transcendent, which means that there's a transcendent reality beyond. The material and the physical. And when Lewis, when he finally converted to Theism in 1929, he called himself the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. And a couple of years later, it's very interesting. He converted to Christianity, and the experience goes like this: He was, his brother was riding a motorbike, and he was in the sidecar next to his brother's motorbike. So he's like, mm, okay, you know, like moving. And then at the end of the ride, he decided to trust in Jesus Christ. So maybe it's not so bad to be in a motorbike or to go on a motorbike ride. But I think what it does is that it actually reflects something about the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not about all of these things that you have, but actually it's about trusting in Jesus Christ. And for Lewis, you know, he had all of this atheism that he was struggling with, that he was wrestling with, but at the end of the day, What it comes down to is whether he trusted in Jesus Christ, or whether he believed in the message of the Gospel. And because of that, Lewis himself, he became one of the most influential writers, Christian writers of the 20th century. And it was through trusting in Jesus Christ that Lewis himself experienced the life-transforming and the liberating power of the Gospel. And this is the same for us as well, the same message that's proclaimed to all of us, whether we believe in the simple message of the gospel, whether we trust in Jesus Christ and not our own works. And this is the message that Jesus came to proclaim. And we would do well, we would do very well to embrace that message. Now finally, how did the crowd respond to what Jesus preached? Well, this is our final point. Let's look at verse 28 together. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So Luke tells us that the people were angry. They were angry with what Jesus has proclaimed. In fact, they were so upset they were so angry that verse 29 tells us that they wanted to throw him down the cliff. They wanted to kill Jesus Christ. And this is surprising in a way because just a few verses before, in verse 22, you know, all of these people, they were speaking so well of Jesus Christ. They were marveling at his words. And yet, when they heard something that offended their sensibilities, what happened was that all hell broke loose. And the people turned into a lynching mob. You know, Jesus said that he will be rejected in his hometown. And what we find here is that he was indeed rejected by his people. In a sense, this gives us a preview of what to expect when Jesus gets arrested by the authorities. That you'll see the same angry mob demanding to take his very life. Only this time... Jesus will come face to face with a Roman cross instead of an escape route. And New Testament scholar Robert Stein he puts it this way: at the very beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry, the cross was casting its shadow over Jesus' life. As you read these verses, you may wonder: you know, how did these people turn from praising him to being irate with him? You know what accounts for this dramatic change. In attitudes, now, I think there are two things that we can consider for this change. For one, I think they have misunderstood what Jesus came to do. They had this idea that the Messiah came to liberate them from their political plight. They had this idea that Jesus or this Messiah was coming to liberate them from the reign of the Romans and to bring them to a new political reign, that the Messiah would come as the political Leader. So the last thing that they wanted to hear was to be told that they were sinners who needed to repent and to be forgiven of their sins. So I think the first thing to consider is that they had this misunderstanding. The second thing is this. I think deep down, they actually knew that Jesus was right about them. Deep down, these people actually knew that Jesus was right about them. You see, these people came to the synagogue and they were expecting to hear good news from jesus christ instead what they heard what they heard with their own ears is that jesus was exposing them as sinners you know they had this idea that they were good people you know by coming to the synagogue and by following by abiding by the laws of their religion and so when jesus came and he got to the heart of the matter that they were actually sinners the people responded with anger. And what we find here is this, that they were okay with Jesus reading the word for them, but they were not okay with Jesus applying the word to them. They were okay with Jesus reading the word for them, standing there in the midst of the crowd to read the word for them, but they were not okay with Jesus applying the word to all of them. But you see, Jesus himself, he wasn't just concerned with their outward obedience. Jesus wanted them to be convicted of their sins, the deeply rooted sins in all of their hearts. And yet the crowd would have none of this. The crowd responded by refusing to confess their sins. They responded by fencing themselves from confessing their sins so that they may maintain the facade of their righteousness, and by refusing the conviction and the confession of their sins, these people remain trapped in their unbelief. And when we look at the people's response to Jesus, you may say, you know, how could they do that? How could they just reject Jesus like that? You know, how could they have the impulse to actually throw Him off the cliff? But friends, we need to recognize that the reality is that we are are just like them that in our natural states in our natural selves all of us are just like them that we are actually self-righteous you know the social psychologist Jonathan Hyde who is also an atheist he says in his book the righteous mind that self-righteousness is the normal human condition self righteousness is the normal human condition and this self-righteousness is not about thinking whether we are right which is not wrong If you get what I'm saying, the fact that we think whether we are wondering whether we're right or wrong, that is not bad in and of itself, but it's actually the attitude that underlies all of it. It's about condescending, it's about looking down on other people with different morals and values from all of us, rather than proclaiming the truth with humility and winsomeness, rather than speaking the truth in love. And so what happens is that we become. Defensive, right? You know, someone disagrees with me. Oh, okay, I get all defensive. Now I'm going to tell you why I'm right and you are wrong and I'm going to destroy, you know, your arguments. And we have that attitude sometimes that we become all defensive and we just want to destroy our opponents. Or we make all of this snide and sarcastic remarks at other people, people who would dare say or imply that we are wrong. And friends, that is the thing that is being addressed here, that is the self-righteousness, that is the pride that all of us have in our natural state. And we find this with the Jewish mob. And the reality is this, you may not want Jesus dead. You may not want Jesus physically dead, but if Jesus comes to you and if he's meddling in your heart, if He's showing you your sin and you reject His conviction, then perhaps you're no different from those people. And perhaps you're no different from the crowd that wanted Jesus dead. But friends, if we recognize that salvation is truly by grace and grace alone, that God has no regard for your morality when it comes to saving you, then there's no place for us to be arrogant there is no place for all of us to be snobbish. There's only room for us to come to the end of ourselves and to recognize that our only contribution to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. It's not just about confessing in a general way because that is the easy thing to do. You know, It's so easy for us to say, I'm a sinner and I sin all the time. I just keep it in those vague and generic terms. It's easy to do that, but it's much more difficult to confess your specific sins. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith, one of the documents that we subscribe to, talks about repenting of our particular sins particularly. And this means that we admit that all of these things in our lives that have gone horribly wrong because of what we have done, we need to admit those are actual wrongs that we have done. And that can be very difficult for many of us, especially when we feel the shame that comes with confessing our sins. And friends, we need to recognize the wonder of all of this, and that is that confession leads us to liberation. Confession leads us to true liberation. You see, when we confess our sins, Rather than allowing ourselves to be bogged down, to be weighed down by guilt and shame itself, when we confess them, it actually frees us to find forgiveness with God. It frees us to seek forgiveness with those we have sinned against. And what it does is that it removes it actually removes fear in our lives. It removes the burden of unhealthy fear. It restores our relationship with God himself, and it restores our relationship with the people that we have sinned against. And that is the freeing thing about confession. And once we come here, then we can sense, then we can begin to sense the reality of God's grace. We can sense, uh, we can have this fresh sense of God's renewing grace in all of our lives. And friends, that is how we can experience true liberty, that is how we can experience liberation, and it is found only in the message of God's kingdom. And friends, all of us, whether Christians or not Christian, all of us, we need to be aligned, or for some of us, we need to be realigned to the message of God's kingdom. And the question is how? How do we go about doing all of that? And we can do that by embracing the message that Jesus came to preach. The message that is about the forgiveness of sins to needy sinners just like you and me. And see, if we think that we are self-sufficient, if we think that we are self-sufficient and there is nothing in us that's actually needy, then perhaps we're still some ways off from the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus calls us to recognize our neediness. He calls us to acknowledge our neediness. We need to recognize that we are spiritually poor. We need, to see that we need to see our poverty before Him, that there is nothing that we can truly offer to God Himself. And in fact, none of us have the ability to even begin to save ourselves. And the only thing that saved us or can save us is the free generosity that God has lavished upon us. It's the free gift of God in Jesus Christ that came to us at the greatest cost to Himself. That He gave up His life so that we may have a place in God's glorious kingdom. And so as we come to a close, you know, how would you respond? To this good news, would you reject it or would you embrace it with your whole heart? Do you see yourself as poor and needy before God himself? And do you believe in the liberating message of God's kingdom? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you gave us the breath of life so that we may live for you. And Father, would you fill all of us with the Holy Spirit so that we may have the strength to put our sins to death. Father, would you remind us that we are poor and needy so that we may turn to you in humble dependence. Father, would you give us the strength to sustain us in all of the trials and temptations that we face. Father, would you establish our hearts in peace and joy. And Father, would you help us to live as people who are empowered by your Spirit so that your kingdom may be seen in the fullness of its glory. And so hear us pray, O Father, as you pray all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.